at least up to the point that we sang in that song, that sounds like a bleak description of the Christian life. And it's good that we would have something like that in our hymnal. When you think, who actually selected the songs in the hymnal? A body of ministers. And there was a room with perhaps 12 ministers in it. Before this was sent out to the the whole federation, not only of the URCNA, but the Orthodox Presbyterian Church as well, where we all approved of the hymns. And this body of men said, yep, that sounds like my experience, and it belongs in here. Book of James says, confess your sins one to another. We don't revel in struggle and failure, but we do acknowledge it as a part of the Christian life. And the people to whom Paul was writing, as I invite you to turn and look in 1 Thessalonians 5 at our text for this morning, were a young congregation. If they had not already learned this lesson, they were going to. Even as the hymn says, I thought that in some favored hour, all at once he would perform this sanctifying work. And they were, of course, going to discover that the Christian life is an endurance race. It is about perseverance. Just this week I mentioned to a brother who had confessed that he feels like it's been some real ups and downs lately. I told him, the longer I am a believer, the more I rejoice in perseverance than in meteoric rises. Some people have this meteoric rise, and then a few years later, they come crashing down, and That doesn't mean we should be suspicious of every meteoric rise. But it's not about outward appearances. It's about the lifetime work of the Holy Spirit. Now, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, our passage for this morning as we work through this epistle, we are coming to the parting words. There are several little segments here, and this morning we see in particular the apostles' parting desire for these people whom he loves dearly, that he is a special minister to. And in that way, the Holy Spirit is holding before us what God's desire is for you as a believer. And then in turn, what our desire should be for all other people as well. So let's give our attention beginning at verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Let's ask the Lord's special blessing. Heavenly Father, such assurance we have through your word, knowing that you work by your spirit. One man plants, another man waters. One man puts forth the seed of your word, another adds to it, teaching, instruction, exhortation, and yet it is you who give the increase. You produce that secret work of life, of regeneration, of fruitfulness in us. We thank you this morning as we come before you with your word that we can trust your power. We ask that you would work in us that good thing, that you would soften us to receive your truth, to repent as necessary to be lifted up in faith in Christ. For in Jesus' precious name, all God's people pray. Amen. 
When people are going separate ways for any length of time, typically, you know, they become more choosy about their words. They want to communicate something of their desire, of their love and affection. And that's certainly the case with the Apostle Paul. As he comes to the end of this epistle, probably he knows he's not going to communicate with this young church for many months, if not more. And he also knows that his own life is a more perilous life than many people. He's the kind of man who's regularly, it seems, being shipwrecked or beaten, pursued in every way, put into prison. He doesn't know when he's going to get to express his desires to them again. And so the words that come at the end of this epistle are highly significant as they are in all of the Pauline epistles. It's very clear, too, as we look at the text, that Paul was being intentional in what he's saying. You notice in verse 13, it says, Be at peace among yourselves. And then in our passage this morning, the God of all peace. Paul is tying up the section that we've been in for a number of weeks, actually more than a month, on practicing peace. He knew how hard it is to practice real Christian peace in the home, in the church, with the Christian community at large. And so now at this point, after having told them what to do, he is reaffirming to them the power of the gospel, pointing them towards the promises given in Jesus Christ. And we need that too. Having heard for weeks what it looks like to practice peace, we need to be brought back to that. But his words are even more intentional because in this passage, these few verses, he hits on the three main ideas covered throughout this epistle. He comes back and ties them all together. When he says that he's praying for God to sanctify you completely, this reflects the concern throughout the epistle for their conduct. We've seen in the past, if you weren't here, we saw that he addresses their vocations, their relationships to authority, their sexual morality, and many other issues. And so here he brings that back to a prayer, may God sanctify you. And the reference to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, this echoes the concern that they had about Jesus' return that he addresses in chapter 4. The reassurance that the one who calls you is faithful, that language of calling, four different times in this epistle he addresses their election of God having chosen them. That matters a lot all the time, but especially for a people who are experiencing all kinds of persecution, affliction, temptation. And I know that some of you are those people this morning. And you need to be reminded that God is faithful. He who calls you will complete it. He called you. You didn't call him. You didn't get on the phone and say, Lord, I want what you have to offer. And the Lord said, well, because you called first, I'm going to do this work in you. He first loved us, therefore we love him. He who began a good work in you shall complete it to the day of Christ Jesus. And so Paul is being extremely intentional in his words here as he ties together the whole epistle. Essentially what he's doing is showing us, the Holy Spirit is presenting before us the Lord's desire for his covenant people. And in turn, we are being shown the desire that Christ would form in you. As we consider these ideas together this morning, that is my prayer, my desire for you as well. That God forms in you a longing for the things described here, both for yourself and more and more for others as well. 
So as we look through this passage, first, there will be two main headings. We're going to first see a little bit more clearly what is the apostle's desire, and then secondly, what that is depending upon. Look with me at verse 23 again as we look at this first point, what the apostle desired for this young church. Verse 23, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you. The apostle's desire is for our sanctification. To sanctify simply means, most simply means, to set something apart for a special use, to reserve it for a special kind of use. And the Lord himself provided us the perfect illustration, the entire Mosaic system of worship, with the temple, with the Levitical system. You think of all of those golden vessels and special implements, the Ark of the Covenant itself, these were all called sanctified things. They had been set apart for specific use. In fact, to use them in the wrong way was to call down God's judgment. He was driving home a point. What is set apart to me is mine and no others. Unlike the vessels of the Old Covenant period, you are created as God's image bearer, a rational creature, an emotional creature, a creature of will. And therefore, to be sanctified unto the Lord means being set apart for his glory, his pleasure, and to do so in a voluntary, a loving way. That is why you are. That is why I am. In order to be sanctified. And you see verse 23, he clarifies a little bit when he says, spirit and soul and body. No part of you is set apart unto the Lord, and the other part is not. Spirit, soul, and body. Now, it was not uncommon in the ancient world to separate these out, to think that you could do your devotional things to the gods, but then you could live however you wanted. Essentially, when you gave offerings in many pagan religions, it was just buyout money. It was like paying off the mafia, but a heavenly mafia. You don't want to experience their wrath, but they don't actually care how you live as long as they receive the honor that they wanted. This is not so for us. He says, spirit, soul, body. Now, I want to be clear. I don't believe, and I am persuaded from Scripture you should not believe, that Paul is trying to communicate some sophisticated doctrine of human nature when he says spirit, soul, and body. That is, he's not saying that you have three separate parts. You've got a spirit and you've got a soul, and these are separate things. The testimony of Scripture overwhelmingly is to present human beings as basically a composition of that which is immaterial and that which is made up of organic matter. We are body and soul. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And yet here, he does say spirit, soul, and body. What is he getting at? It does matter. Spirit, soul, body. I wonder what you think that means. When we survey scripture to find where these occur together, it becomes apparent that when they are joined together, spirit has to do, especially with that aspect of us, which is rational, which thinks. Whereas soul has to do with that capacity we have for feeling, for affection, and desire. You see this, for instance, Isaiah 26, verse 9. Isaiah 26, 9. 
My soul has desired you in the night. My spirit has thought of you. So what is Paul getting at here? I think it's very simple. He's simply saying every part, the entirety of who you are is to be sanctified, set apart to the Lord. Your whole body, all of your thoughts, all of your feelings are for the Lord. And that's Paul's desire for them to be set apart to the Lord in that way. Now, it's very clear he realizes that this is not going to be complete in this life. Look again at verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. First, just appreciate completely. That is the desire here. And it should be your desire, complete sanctification. That not one element, not one moment of your being would be set apart to yourself in a selfish way. And I put it to you as a question, whether that is your desire presently. I think our actions show that, in a sense, it is not. But one of the hallmarks of genuine conversion is a longing, Lord, all of me. I long for that day. When will that day be? And here, the apostle points us beyond this life to the coming of Christ. Why does he do that? I would submit to you two reasons why he reminds us that complete sanctification is not now. One, so that you are not overwhelmed when you discover that this body of death, as it says in Romans 7, clings to you. It will cling to you until you are out of this age, until you're passing. And when it says this body of death, he's not saying that your physical flesh is the problem per se. Though our physical flesh is weak, yet it is ultimately a matter of the heart. It's not the tongue that makes you sin. It's the heart which guides the tongue. Out of that come the issues of life. And the Lord would not have us be deceived. I have mentioned before, I have known some people, and I imagine some of you have as well, who bought into a lie, into a deceit, that there is such a thing as entire sanctification in this life. Not just a clean conscience that you're not aware of intentionally committing sin, but that you can stop sinning and be done. I knew a man. I know I've said this before. I will say it again. I knew a man who told me. And I think he was a teacher of a false gospel. He would preach on street corners. No one asked him to. And he was telling people that to be saved, you had to stop sinning. And he told me personally he had not sinned in two years. He is presently in prison for beating his wife during the two-year period. It's not funny. It's horrifying. That people, if they think their salvation does depend upon perfect obedience, well, they're not actually going to become perfectly obedient. They're going to suppress their conscience so that they can live with this reality and their fear of hell. We need to recognize the scripture does not teach that in this life there is complete sanctification. But there's a second reason why our sanctification is not complete in this life. Because sanctification cannot be complete where the human is not complete. Complete humans have bodies. God did not create us to be ejected from this body. It wasn't meant to be like whatever's left behind after a butterfly emerges. God's intention for us was not to get rid of this flesh, but to put on 
our everlasting bodies. In fact, I want you to see this. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Part of the reason I want you to see this is because it runs so in the face of many of the pressures and assumptions of our present culture. You have people in our present culture who imagine that given enough time, humans would simply cease to be biologically. It's a, evolutionarily speaking, we're becoming something else, and so there is no such thing in a big sense of a human. There's just a creature in transition, and humans will give way to whatever the next thing is. So you have that false gospel of we will transcend all of our problems by simply biologically growing beyond it. Or you have another false gospel. You have people today who more and more actually think that technology will be the way that we transcend ourselves, that we merge ourselves with technology. If that sounds crazy to you, you simply aren't listening to enough crazy. Because <laughs> intelligent, powerful people do believe that that will be the way that humanity transcends its faults. In a sense, how it arrives at sanctification, a version of sanctification. God's will was always for us to have an identifiably human being, but one glorified. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all, in the context here being all of those whom Christ represents, shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. How does that tie to the resurrection? Why do the saints need to be raised in order for God to be all in all? Because God's desire is to be glorified in and through creation, including these bodies that he made for us, that we would use them in a way that brings him glory. He didn't come up with this design just to throw it away, but the new creation, we understand from Scripture, is a time when we will do things that are not, I imagine, utterly unlike what we do now. And so the Lord desires that for us. Look at verse 53. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Victory is not simply a soul going to heaven. Victory is the soul being reunited with a body in order that it might act out all of God's desires for us to experience, to enjoy, to glorify him. And so your sanctification is not complete until the resurrection. And yet, so often, I imagine, we think of our sanctification being complete simply at the glorification of our spirit. 
No, something more remains. That's why we find in the book of Revelation, the martyrs crying out, when, Lord, how long? That's not just about, you know, we want to see judgment on the enemies. It's the desire, as it says in Romans, that creation longs to see the sons of God. It's as if the world itself wants to be used in the right way. That beach where people are all playing, frolicking by the sea, if the waves could talk, they'd say, Use me for God's glory. Some woodworker who is working on a project for his own ends, for his own glory, the wood would say to him, please use me for God's glory. And so God desires us, spirit, soul, and body, to be totally conformed to him. That's not possible in this life. And yet, there is something which is possible. And notice what it says in verse 23. These two words. Kept blameless. Kept blameless. Here, those words get at a high degree of sanctity that every Christian is to walk in. And if you fall out of it, you are to go back to it. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Go back just a little bit to chapter 2. And you'll see this word again. The apostle says concerning not only himself, but the whole group of missionaries with him. Verse 10, you are witnesses and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. How holy, righteous, and blameless was our conduct toward you. And that's not just the apostle. It was his whole posse of missionaries who were with him. Brother, sister. This is an attainable goal. It is the standard to which you personally are called. To be blameless isn't completely free of all fault. God sees all. But it does mean that you live in such a way. The way that word is used throughout scripture is you live in such a way that no one can accuse you of living in unrepentant sin. You are at war with all sin. And if you fail in one battle, you are turning immediately against it. You don't go to sleep on your sins. And God forbid, if you do, you wake up the next day and you repent. You don't have another option. We don't. What is the other option? To throw up our hands and say, well, I must not be a believer, so I'm going to live in the world. No, your only option is to repent. And to seek a standard of genuine blamelessness. Blameless. This is the apostle's desire for them And so I ask you whether this is your desire. Is it your desire, first, to be completely sanctified in the age to come? There are many people who do not want judgment. They are fearful of perhaps there being a hell. They certainly want life to go on. But sanctification is being set apart to the Lord for communion with him, for glorification of him. I remember a time in my life where I definitely didn't want to perish, but I remember being angry that the Lord's plan for me was so all about him. (laughs) And that is because in my heart, I had no idea who he was. I was ignorant. I thought goodness just floated in the air and God happened to grab up more of it for himself. No, he's the source of everything good and true and beautiful. 
And your desire then, if you are converted, is him. He is what makes heaven heavenly. David says ultimately of Christ, Whom have I in heaven but you, O Lord? There is nothing I desire upon the earth beside you. Whatever I love, the truest part of me, loves because it shows me you. Loves because it gives me an opportunity to love you. So different than much of what people seek. And is that your desire for others as well? Not simply that they would go to heaven, but that up until then, our lives would reflect blamelessness. Not just decency. And I find that's a place where I'm challenged because oftentimes I do feel more or less, I'm just glad that people are not turning away from the Lord. And the bar goes down and down and down. We must desire, brothers and sisters, that standard because that is the place wherein Christians flourish. We don't flourish in the middle zone. In the middle zone, you are always uncomfortable. You're on both sides of the fence. Having been born again, true joy is found in conformity. And so if we don't want that for others, we're actually not wanting their highest joy. And we're not wanting the Lord to receive all the glory he desires and deserves. That is a tall order, I acknowledge it. And I want to ask you this question. How do you seek it? If it's not your desire, how do you even begin to have it be your desire? And if it is your desire, how do you actually go about seeking that for yourself and for others? To become blameless and to embrace and to receive full sanctification. You could look back through this epistle and you could see in one sense how Paul does so, how he seeks it. He seeks it in one sense. He seeks their sanctification by commanding them to walk in a sanctified way. This epistle is full of commands. We've seen them now. That's part of it, but that's not where he leaves them. God uses means, but he is at the bottom the means. He is both the end and the means to the end. And Paul doesn't leave them just at the command, nor can we leave ourselves or others there. I want you to see as our second and final heading what the fulfillment of this depends upon. Verse 23. Now, I have such joy. It is such a privilege if there are people here for whom what I'm going to say is relatively new or entirely new. There was a point when it was new for me, the thing that is here. And I know for some of you, there was a point in adulthood or maybe your late teenage years where grace as it really is dawned on you. And I desire that your eyes would be opened if you are such a person. But for many of us, we have had years, if not decades, of marinating in the very thing that's about to be said here. Why do we need to hear it again? Because we're still in this age. We are not completely sanctified. And the whole of our fleshly nature militates against confidence in the Lord. Every week we turn back to rely upon ourselves. If we didn't, we'd be more sanctified than we are. See what it says in verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you. The fulfillment of your sanctification, to be blameless in this life, to be completely sanctified in the age to come, depends upon God himself. 
The gospel, in a sense we might say, is God. It is the good news that God, in time, in history, performs on behalf of his covenant people all those things which they need. Not simply that Christ is crucified to pay for our sins, that he's raised for our justification, but also that Christ sends forth his Holy Spirit and actually works in people. That he begins and he completes the work. Now may God, the God of peace himself, sanctify you. And the peace it's speaking of here is not simply that God is peaceful in himself. It's speaking about that state of reconciliation that we are brought into through God's work. Isn't that the source of most, if not all, of our unrest, our struggles with sin, and our looking upon the sin in the world? The God of peace himself will sanctify you. It's a minor point, but it is worth drawing out. The word in our English translations here, may, may. Usually in English that functions as a subjunctive, it refers to a possibility. Something may or may not happen. That's called a subjunctive. In the original language, this is not a separate word. It doesn't doesn't occur in the text. Rather, the verb, because Greek is not identical to English in its grammar, The verb itself is in a different form, and it's not a subjunctive. Why do I say that? You don't have to walk out of here with all the grammar, but typically in Greek, a subjunctive refers to something that you have some amount of apprehension about. I don't know what's going to happen. He uses, Paul uses a totally different mood here. He uses an optative with the verb. You don't have to remember that word. You have to remember this. When we find this kind of phrasing, especially at the end of an epistle, it's functioning as a benediction, as a prayer. And the prayer is stated grammatically in such a way that it doesn't increase our doubt. Even the form of the grammar here is one of confidence. Now, why is he confident? Now, may that we shouldn't, we should not pray for other people in a spirit of doubt. Maybe the Lord will sanctify you. But our hearts often do change the grammar, don't they? Where is this confidence coming from? It's twofold. Part, very obviously, God has invincible power. We forget that every day. We know with our brain in one sense, but we forget meaningfully. God's not weak to change us. I knew a young man. I remember speaking with this young man, and he told me about how On his apartment floor, he was weeping, saying to the Lord, I am so sorry you can't sanctify me. I am so sorry. I've been trying and trying. I'm so sorry you can't sanctify me. And then he had this realization. I think he can. Why isn't he? That's a completely different thing. But I think he can, because doesn't the psalmist say, Incline my heart, O Lord, and I will run in all your commandments. If I incline the pulpit this way, everything up here is going to go that way. Incline my heart, O Lord. Jesus turns water into wine. He can certainly take the heart of a person who is opposed to him and transform it. Cleanse me, O Lord. Renew my spirit. Give me a steadfast spirit before you, says the psalmist. He has the power to sanctify you. Sometimes when I find myself bogged down in some particular temptation... 
I will actually verbalize that. Lord, you can sanctify me. Just as a diagnostic to see, am I doubting that? Lord, you can sanctify me. What happens at the moment people die, Christians die, they go to glory and suddenly we believe they're not sinning anymore. Their whole life, every day, every moment, they're sinning and then suddenly they die and we believe they don't sin anymore. Is it that, you know, right at the moment they died, they made their mind up, they're going to do what's right. God changed them. By the way, as you have conversations with people who are not so-called Calvinistic, not reformed in their understanding of salvation and how God mediates those things, I often begin at that point. We already agree concerning glory that God can transform a person at such a deep level, the level of their very nature, that their will follows suit. Why won't you will to sin in glory? It's not because you made your mind up. It's because God changed you. Fundamentally, he freed you from your addiction to love of sin. And even so, if he can do it in glory, he can do that work now. Why does he delay it in some ways? That is a whole other issue. That's the issue raised in the song that we sang. But there is the other side of this, the basis for confidence, which is God's faithfulness. It's one thing for God to have raw power. It's a different thing for him to use it for us. Look at verse 24. He who calls you is faithful. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. God's raw power cannot give you joy or confidence if it is not married to his character, his faithfulness. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Paul's confidence comes from the promises God makes to us in Jesus Christ. Through faith, we are united with him. A union never to be broken apart. Look with me over at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, 13. The Lord blessed Paul with an opportunity to follow up with this church, and he says, We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters loved by the Lord, because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, through belief in the truth. He doesn't thank them for having made the good choice. He thanks God for having chosen them. And yet God works through means, through belief in the truth. Somebody wonders, how do I know if I'm chosen? Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you know, because that's why you believed. But our faith has to point to him. Our faith must not be, in that sense, in our own faith or our faithfulness. I know most of you have heard this hundreds of times. I have not lost the need to be told again. My prayer for you is that it's the same. That constantly we turn back, and this becomes not just something we say to ourselves, but we actively apply to the members of the Christian community and to those outside to tell them where our true hope lies. To tell people when they ask and they're struggling with sin, tell them the things that they should do, but tell them God is faithful, he will surely do it. Look to that, look to him. Don't look to yourself. Believe that he is at work in you. This desire, as we've seen, as we come to conclude, is one of the hallmarks of genuine Christian faith. 
I don't like unnecessarily disturbing the assurance of genuine believers. We ought always to be careful with that. And yet I would be false if I didn't lay before you this truth. If you can't say with a clean conscience that as a pattern of life, as a pattern of life, you long to be freed from your sin in order to love the Lord, if you can't say with a sincere, albeit imperfect conscience, that your desire is to be united with Christ, and that your desire for others above all things is for those blessings, are you converted? 1 John 3 reflects this when he says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when Jesus appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself as he is pure. If you have the hope that we are going to be like Christ, then already now you seek to purify yourself. And that just keeps going in this life. If that is unfamiliar to you, don't put your confidence in yourself. Look to Christ. Ask him, do this in me, Lord. Forgive my sins. Change me. But if your confidence has been in him, receive the apostolic word. He who called you is faithful. He will do it. This, as he moves into the close of the letter, is definitely meant for our joy. Definitely meant for our joy so that we would not be overcome in despair. Look with me in your bulletin. Then we'll close in prayer. The words of the song that we sang just before this, I asked the Lord that I might grow. And hear what it says in stanzas 6 and 7. If you're a little bit thrown off by the older language, just appreciate that it means that our struggle has been going on for a long time. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayest find thy all in me. Paul knew they were up against some very, very hard things, and the Lord knows you are too. May we find our all in him and the hope that we have in Christ. Let's ask for him to do that even now. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us sure words of the gospel. If this morning we feel that these things are well known to us, we thank you, Lord, for having matured us. But if this morning we find that we are heavy with the weights of the trials, the temptations of this life, the doubts that come through all manner of affliction in the world, we pray that you would please apply to us not only this hour, but continually the assurance that you are faithful. Your word says that the calling which you placed upon us was determined from eternity in Christ.
And your word says in Romans 8 that those whom you called, you also sanctify, and them you also glorify. We pray that you would not let us lose sight of these things, but that they would become the means by which we encourage others. And as a church, we grow more and more solid in our joy. For in Jesus Christ's precious name, all God's people pray. Amen.